Welcome back or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. As I've mentioned in recent episodes, this show will start to go through various seasons as we go deep on specific themes. Lately, I've been really interested in that intersection between running and entrepreneurship. So full disclosure, this episode does focus on how to build a running related internet business. If that's your jam right now, this is a fantastic episode. To show the audience how it's done, we have Jason Fitzgerald on the pod. Jason is the founder of strengthrunning.com, which has been around for over 12 years. Check it out when you can. It's got a great blog, podcast, and in general, it's a great resource for runners aiming to get stronger, stay healthy, and race faster. The whole operation started essentially from zero about a decade now to what it is now, and Jason has a lot of insight to show people in a similar position how to get off the ground. Also, just a heads up, this is another episode where we do the lightning round first as a sort of warm-up before getting into the main event. Once we get into the topic of conversation, we touch on how to create awareness, how to identify your target customers, how to think about content creation, the best marketing channels to invest in, and Jason's business inspirations inside and outside the sport of running. This is a great episode. And again, if you've ever wanted to be some sort of entrepreneur in our sport, and to leverage the power of the internet to do it, give this one a listen. Got a cool mountain picture oh, behind yeah. you. Oh yeah, so it looks pretty neat. I'll, I'll give him credit. There's this guy named Andy Earl. So I'm based in Salt Lake City, Utah, right at the base of the Wasatch Mountains, your central Wasatch Range, and. There's this great artist, Andy Earl, and he just does these really cool mock-ups of the famous mountains around town. So I got like Grandeur Peak and Mount Olympus and Lone Peak on that map right there. There's also one, I think you're based in Colorado, right? Yep. He's done one on Nolan's 14 in like the Sawatch range there. Anyways, cool mountain culture artist. Yeah, nice. But okay, let's do this. So we were talking offline, or at least I was talking offline about how I like to experiment on the show and... In the same way that on workout days, we warm up before a workout, we like to just get the juices flowing, get the legs flowing. I thought it'd be cool to switch things up and do the lightning round of questions here first before we dive into the meat of the episode. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. Are there any books, podcast episodes, TV shows, movies, or songs that you've come across recently that have fundamentally changed the way you see the world or just work and live? Wow. That's a great question. I just finished Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson. And it's a book that I never thought I would read a decade ago. It's essentially a half biography of Leonardo da Vinci and half art history. You learn about Vitruvian Man and the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper and Lady with Ermine and all the, the paintings and pieces of art that he's known for. But really, it's a book about cultivating creativity and creating a body of work in creative work that I just thought was so fascinating. And this is now the second Walter Isaacson book that I've read. I first read the Steve Jobs book, and I can't wait to read the Albert Einstein biography that he's written. But in addition to just being like superbly written, you can fly through 30 pages of art history, which is not really my, my cup of tea that I never thought I would be reading about. But it really changed how I thought about how you think about your work, how you approach creativity, how 
curiosity can really be a superpower and how it can lead you down all kinds of different roads and expose yourself to serendipity and other opportunities. So yeah, this book is a book that I finished maybe five to seven days ago, but I keep thinking about it and I am recommending it left and right to people. I just think it's such a phenomenal read. It's Bill Gates's favorite book, which I I thought was Mm. interesting because Da Vinci is such a polymath. And I think that's what Bill Gates really appreciates and respects about him. And and now I do too, just the, the absolutely incredible scope and breadth of Da Vinci's genius is, is something that I think everyone recognizes on a superficial level, but then when you really study it, it just blows your mind at what he was able to do in around the you know turn of the, the 16th century. That is a book that's changed how I think about work, creativity, curiosity, and I would recommend it to anyone who would want to approach their work with a bit more of, of those mental skills, the curiosity and creativity. That's a fantastic answer. And I can second the Walter Isaacson recommendation. I, I have the Steve Jobs book on my shelf right now. So going off that thread there, is there any other wisdom that you've come across recently that's resonated with you that you'd want to share with the audience? Another good one. I'll come back to a book I finished actually a year ago, but I was fortunate enough to have one of the authors on my podcast uh, recently, and they wrote a book called The Uphill Athlete. And House, it, yeah. Yeah, by House and Johnston. And I have it behind me. I had Johnston on my podcast, and we talked about the tripod of endurance and how if you're thinking about endurance is really essentially three different ways of thinking about it that I thought was just really interesting. And I think more of a comprehensive look at endurance. And he also has this really great perspective on faster running workouts and whether they are utilization workouts versus capacity workouts. And Mm -hmm. what that really means is utilization workouts are workouts that help you utilize your current fitness better. Capacity workouts are workouts that build your fitness capacity. And you can go for a 20 mile run, but that's a capacity workout. You are building your endurance that is going to allow you to do more things in the future. But if you get on the track and run eight by 400 at mile or two mile race pace with a 90 second recovery, that's a utilization workout. That's a sharpening workout that you might do in the peaking phase of training. And so that idea and that way of looking at workouts, are they building your capacity or are they kind of fine tuning what you already have? I think is a really fascinating way to look at workouts. And I really appreciate that wisdom right there. We, we are totally vibing here because I've also read that book and I love that framework and philosophy of capacity versus utilization. Yeah. I've got it on my bookshelf <laughs> right there behind me. That's a good one. it. We'll get to the strength running brand here in a second, but just as a prelude, name one thing that your work in podcasting slash content creation has taught you that you think has widespread applicability that anyone should know for really any areas of life. I think most importantly, it's that you're never going to be able to do anything if you're not consistent. Mm -hmm. And I had been doing my podcast for over three years close to three and a half years. And it wasn't until the pandemic hit in March of 2020, when, you know, things started shutting down 
that I started being more consistent with the podcast. And I also started being really consistent with the strength running YouTube channel. And it's amazing because I'd always known this lesson from running. You're never going to be a good runner unless you run consistently. It's just the bedrock. Of course, you can layer on all the advanced workouts and training progressions and all that stuff. But at the beginning of it all, fundamentally, you have to be consistent. And what I, I was reminded of was you have to do that with anything that you're trying to build or grow or really make a splash with. And for both the podcast and the YouTube channel, things started clicking when I had a much more regular schedule. And so it was a great little, you know, pat on the back that, Hey, this consistency thing it isn't just Apple else, especially content mm -hmm. production and building an audience and just creating that regular consistent schedule that any audience is going to come to expect. Any gear or running technology to use? So first of all, for the tech, get yourself a good GPS watch. I think those are fundamental at this point, and they can really help you understand your training, but don't rely on it. And I think it's much more productive to rely on effort and things like that rather than your strict pace. But for gear, there's so many great niche brands today that if you've been a Nike person, you've been getting a lot of New Balance or Adidas stuff, there's nothing wrong with those brands, but some of the more running specific niche brands are just blowing it out of the water with their incredible functionality and comfort of some of their clothes and gear. So if it's been a couple of years, if you haven't picked up some new gear, go check out some niche brands in the running space, whether that's Rabbit or Path Projects or... I think Janji is another good one. All of these brands are just really killing it for runners, creating really functional pieces of apparel. The garment industry, I think, is, has really improved over the last 10 years or so. And so we used to have to choose between, okay, you get your Nike dry fit tech, and then you have cotton. Now we have so many different things. And, and I think there have been so improved over the years that I would definitely recommend anyone who hasn't gotten some new gear in a couple of years to go search those niche brands. Cause there's some great stuff out there. Yeah. We actually have, speaking of niche brands, maybe they're not so niche anymore because they're getting an audience, but I have a uh, Matt Taylor from Tracksmith coming on the show next week. And I think they're a great brand that the trail running world isn't quite familiar with yet, but he has an interesting story to tell and they have a cool value prop. Last question, if it were somehow possible, which pre-Strava historical athlete would you want to see the Strava logs for and why? <laughs> I would probably want to pour over Galen Rupp's training because oh, yes. he's such an enigma. Nobody knows anything about him. Most of the running community, frankly, probably doesn't love him. He's, but none, nevertheless, he's one of the most dominant U.S. runners over the last ten years, and I think he's extraordinarily talented and has done some incredible workouts. But just some of the workouts that we know about, some of those post-race workouts where you're doing eight hundreds or mile reps after a hard two-mile or five k race, is just bananas. And I would love to know the full context of how often is he doing something like that? In, in what context of weekly mileage is he running those kinds of workouts? He's obviously probably doing more than one workout a week. That's a hard day. What's the other hard day look like? There's just so many questions I have for a runner like that. And so I would love to just pour over everything Galen Rupp has to offer. 
we've started to ask that question to guests and that's my favorite one so far. Galen Rupp is truly an enigma and I would, I wish he were on Strava. That concludes the lightning round. We'll see how that plays out. That was an experiment, but I think it's fun to leave with those quick answer, quick response questions before the, the bulk of the show. So yeah, a, a welcome to the single track podcast and, uh, Listeners of this show mostly come from a mountain ultra trail running background, so they might not be familiar with you or the strength running brand. Could you just give us a little bit of a view into your background, the business, what you do, any numbers you're willing to share, what you're working on now? Yeah. Sure. So strength running has been around since 2009. The strength running blog was started in 2010. And we now have the strength running podcast, which actually does feature quite a few ultra runners and mountain runners. I just had numerous mountain runner of the year, Addie Bracey, who I think just won a race. I'm forgetting what race she, she recently won, but we just had her on the podcast and quite a few other really great ultra runners. Mm. But essentially I don't really focus on ultra runners or track athletes or road runners or new runners or advanced runners. I focus on the type of runner who wants to improve. If you want to get better, whether that means run faster, or if you want to prevent more injuries, if you're a particularly injury prone athlete, or if you just want to, you're a new runner, you want to run more consistently. You want to better understand training and, and how to progress and how to structure your running. Then that's the kind of person that I focus on for strength running. And so whether it's the strength log or our ways on how to help runners get better, how to, how can I help them improve, progress forward with their training and their fitness so that they can race faster. And so I started the podcast back in late 2016, and I've been very fortunate that it's grown to, to be one of the more popular running podcasts here in the U S I think it usually trends around number two, three, four, it might be the number to running podcast in the U S of all time. So hmm. I'm super proud of it. And, and I really have all my amazing guests and support from my audience to thank for that. And so what I'm working on right now is very much focusing on the podcast. I absolutely love having these interesting conversations with other runners and other folks in the running space. So the per the, the kind of interviewee that I love to have on the podcast is, is who's around the elite athlete that enables their performances. So you might have an elite athlete who has a running coach, but they might also have a strength coach, a physical therapist, a dietitian, <clears throat> excuse me, a dietitian. They might also have a sports psychologist. So there's a lot of types of people that a pro runner might work with to help them achieve peak performance. Mm -hmm. And that's what I try to do for the recreational runner, the weekend warrior, people like me who are not elite, who are never going to have Nike knocking on their door for a shoe sponsorship, but nevertheless, they love the sport. And so I'm trying to bring in all those subject matter experts to try to help people think more strategically about their training, about their running and design better training so that they can improve. And yeah, I've been doing it now for over 11 years. It's been uh, a real gift and, and I'm super proud of it, but ultimately I'm here for the runner, for whoever wants to get better and, and improve, no matter if they're new or advanced or a road runner or an ultra runner. And just for more context, you know, this show goes through various seasons. And right now we're really interested in that intersection of entrepreneurship and running. And that's really why I wanted to have you on. You've had this incredible experience building what amounts to a successful internet business in our sport. 
And I think that there are listeners to this show that have a similar dream and whether that's coaching related or media or e-commerce or tech related, I was thinking that we could spend a lot of this show, this conversation, walking through any recommendations you have from a digital marketing standpoint. So I'm wondering if we can begin by going back in time about 10 years to when strength running got off the ground. And I'd love to know how you were thinking about who your target customers were, how you were thinking about creating awareness around the brand. How were you thinking about these steps early in the process and what did execution look like? Yeah. So with the full disclosure that when I started, I certainly didn't have everything figured out and I didn't have <laughs> some grand plan or anything like that. I just knew that I loved running. I wanted to help runners. I felt like I had something to share with the running community. And I felt like if I could do that, then I would just figure things out as I went along. It's if you're a new runner, let's first focus on getting involved in the sport. Maybe you join a club, maybe you commit to running four or five days a week. And then from there, good things will happen. You can always progress. You can always build from there. And, mm. and that's how I approached the strength running business. And so at the beginning, strength running was just a blog. And my goal at the beginning was to publish two articles every week that I tried to make better than other running articles that I could find online, whether it was on runner's world or other big running and fitness sites. So I tried to make them longer. I tried to make them more fun to read, maybe include a joke in there. Like that's a good thing. Make reading actually fun for runners who want to be learning about training. And I also tried to combine both my personal experience as a runner with the best practices of training. So it would be really a, a multi-pronged approach to getting better. Yes, it's my experience, which I think is helpful, but I think one of the big mistakes I see a lot of upstart online coaches do is all about their own personal experience. And, and that can be really hard if your experience doesn't include running on a, a for a track or a cross-country team, or you know, if you've never had a coach yourself, it can be really hard to know what to focus on as a coach if you want to become a coach. And so I think personal experience is a good thing, but it also has to be married with what are tr the training best practices? What does the latest research say? What do the current studies say on physiology and exercise science? So I tried to bring everything into it at the beginning and like I mentioned before, consistency is so critically important. I was publishing two articles a week, the week I got married or the week that I was on my honeymoon, the week that my kids were born. There were articles being published every week, no matter what. And I was so extraordinarily consistent for years and years. And, and I think that was a real help for strength running. And then a byproduct of publishing consistent articles on my own website is that strength running now has close to a thousand published articles. And so it brings in a fair amount of search traffic. We have thousands of visits every day that come in from search engines, people who are, you know, searching for different running topics, or they have certain questions. And so from a business perspective, the search engine optimization part of the business has really helped bring in new runners, new clients, new customers. So that's been really great. And as, as far as figuring out who my target audience was, that's a good question. I don't think I ever really thought about that. I always thought about the target audience is people like me, 
non-pro runners who wanted to get better. And I think that's still who I focus on. Although today, these days, I'm a little bit more intentional with particular pieces of content that are focused on different types of runners within that, I think, psychographic, that mentality of improvement, I think is the real critical differentiating factor that, that I really focus on. And then besides search engine optimization, I was active on, I think, Twitter and Facebook at the beginning, hopefully trying to build an audience there yeah. to drive people back to my site who might be interested in some of the things I was writing about running. And then the other thing that I did back in you know 2010, 2011, before I went full-time with strength running that I think was helpful at the time was I participated in some running message boards, particularly on active.com. I don't even know if those message boards are still around. At the time, they were well used. And I went in there and I just tried to be helpful. I tried to answer runners' questions. Very rarely would I actually like post in a link to an article that I had written on the strength running site, but I just had my little signature at the bottom and there was a link to strength running there. And so at the beginning that started drawing in some traffic and the more I would help folks on those forums and answer their questions, the more people would be coming back to strength running. So it was a combination of search results of social media and participating in those forums that brought folks to, to the site. And then as I started connecting with people on social media, I started guest posting or writing articles for other sites. And that was a really helpful strategy years and years ago, a little less common today, but I think still nevertheless, a, a very helpful strategy for anyone who wants to access someone else's audience. You can always pitch them and write an article for their site or go on their podcast or do a video collab with them on YouTube. There's lots of ways to work with people. And at the time it was guest posting for me. And that was super helpful. I want to make one comment because I think you said something brilliant. And then I also want to ask a question to build off what you said. When a lot of people think about building a brand online, they immediately anticipate that they have to do a lot of self-promotion. They have to talk about themselves, their accolades, their credentials. And I think you really came at it from the perspective of how can I be the most helpful to people? I'm finding people online. I'm finding people in these forums, on Facebook, on Twitter. They're communicating these problems. How can I meet them? with my expertise and my knowledge and help them solve their problems. I think that's a great heuristic for anybody looking to get a start as an entrepreneur. It's not necessarily about how do I become as promotional as possible and sell myself. So I just wanted to say that because I thought you made a good point there, but you've brought up this theme of consistency uh, a couple of times now, once in the lightning round and once there, and I want to unpack this a little bit. How do you factor deliberate practice into that equation? And specifically, as you were getting your start with strength running, what did you identify as the highest leverage skills and channels that you needed to master early on? Because you had this belief that if you invested in them with all the time you were putting in, things were going to pay off later on. Yeah, there were certain things that I knew at the very beginning that were more impactful than others that I thought it was much more important to be consistent about. So my behavior on Twitter, not as important as publishing regular articles that I tried to optimize for search engines. I'm not an SEO expert, but I was good enough. I was good enough to get quite a few articles ranking on the first page for certain keywords. And that's been really helpful for strength running. But I think at the beginning, the most high leverage activities that I was doing were number one, posting articles on my site about mm -hmm. running topics. I knew runners 
cared about because I was doing keyword research. I was seeing how many times runners were searching for certain phrases. And then I would use that phrase as like the particular keyword phrase in the article that I was trying to rank for. And, and that would just bring in more traffic. And, and that I think was definitely a high leverage skill that that was really important in the very beginning. And it's still important today. The other thing I was always interested in building my email list, because one of the early lessons I took from the digital marketing unofficial mentors that I had in the space was you have to own your own platform. And what I like about my website is that I own it. No one can just take it away from me. I own my email list. That database is mine. My Twitter feed, my Instagram, even my YouTube subscribers, those aren't actually mine. With a change to the algorithm or one of those businesses goes under, all of that work is gone. And so I think it's really important for anyone getting started in the online space to understand that there are some platforms that you have much more control over mm. and some platforms that you don't. And so try to focus on the ones that you do have control over. And so for me, that was my site, my email list. And I think one of the marketing activities that had a big return on investment was uh, guest posting because it's like a one-two punch, right? So you get the the credibility of posting on a, a larger website that might have a bigger audience, you get the immediate traffic of they might publish the article. They might include the article in their newsletter. They might promote the article and then with my handle on social media. So there's a lot of promotion that goes along with it. You typically get a, a rush of traffic on the day that it's, it's posted. But then the kind of long tail effects of that is that in the article, hopefully you're able to link back to your site once or twice. And if you can choose what words you're linking back, you can link back to articles you're trying to get ranked for certain keywords. And so you're helping your search engine uh, optimization efforts at the same time that you're bringing fresh people to the site. So it's a great little, I think one, two, three punch of credibility, traffic and, and search engine optimization. So I think those are some of the, the bigger lessons I learned at the very beginning that really helped create a good foundation for strength running. And you've mentioned this on other podcasts, and I think it's worth bringing up here. And that is that you have to really love this content creation process. And even more specific than that, you have to be comfortable with really putting out a lot of your best content into the world for free in order to, to build this audience and ultimately to drive business for whatever you're trying to sell. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because I think a lot of people, when they think about online marketing and building a business, they would assume that to be successful, they can't just give away their best information. Talk about why you took that strategy with strength running and how it's been successful. Yeah. So essentially strength running operates on the freemium model. I bring people awareness about strength running through social media posts, podcast episodes, videos, articles that I publish on the site. All of those are free. And I think for the most part, you should give away pretty much most of your best material. In my case, I have lots of paid programs. I don't really give away training plans, specific training plans, just because I think mm, that doesn't really tell you a lot. I'm much more in favor of getting runners to think more strategically about training and then the actual mechanics of it. Hopefully they can either build their own plan or if they want to, they can get a plan from strength running. But I don't think that any entrepreneur should have this idea in their head that I'm going to cannibalize my business if I give away all this material for free, because 
it, it just doesn't really happen. You, you get a lot of people who buy programs because they want material that is cultivated. They want a curated program. Yeah. And I very rarely get people who say, hey, I bought your program and I can find all of this online for free. And that might be true. I push back on that because there's a lot of proprietary stuff in there you can't find elsewhere. But it's one of those things where I could get an undergraduate degree in almost any topic by just reading all of the books. I think Harvard syllabus is available online. So what's the actual value of going to a school and, and being in a class and talking to your classmates and having your professor lead a discussion? It's a curation. It's about someone leading that discussion. And the same thing is true with the program. You have a certified running coach kind of curating all of this material and the problem with just going online and searching for stuff is, my God, there's so much crap out there. And you have to be good enough to know how to filter through it. And so I'm someone who would always pay for premium content online if it's going to save me time, it's going to save me effort. And especially with something like running, it's just safer. I'm not going to get injured and, and I have a much higher chance of, of achieving my goal. So I don't think runners or I'm sorry, entrepreneurs should really worry about giving away material. There's a couple things I don't really give away like training plans. I have an injury prevention program that has very specific treatment protocols for various injuries. I don't really do specific treatment protocols. That would have to be, that's a paid option, but for the most part, everything's free. And I think people get the idea that you do just want to help them because if you are constantly holding back and, and not giving away some of your best ideas or strategies to help people in whatever kind of area or industry that you're in, then, you know, they're going to pick up on that. And they're going to notice that he always goes 70% of the way there. And then there's a pitch to buy the program. I'm okay pitching a product. And I think if you have a good solution to a problem, you should aggressively pitch it because it's going to help that person. It's almost like you have a moral responsibility to convince someone that you can solve their problem if you know you can. But that doesn't mean that you should be pitching them every single day, every single piece of content that you create. Sometimes you just have to create a piece of content and it's just purely helpful. There's no call to action. There's no uh, ulterior motive to the content. And if you do that long enough, you're going to develop a fan base of people who are so appreciative of your work that they're going to buy your stuff, even if 80% of it could be found online. Could you give an example of a piece of really valuable content that strength running might put out into the world for free? And then how that piece of content goes to work for you from a funnel perspective. And I think it'd be helpful to define what we mean by funnel here as well. Yeah. Let me give you probably the best example. One of the reasons why I started strength running back in 2010 is because I had just gotten healthy from this six month IT band injury. And I had gone to four physical therapists. It took such a long time to, to heal. And at the end of it, what really got me healthy was the majority of it was a, a certain exercise routine that I created based on my research on the injury and seeing all these physical therapists. And I call it the ITB rehab routine. It's just a series of, I think, eight to 10 exercises. It takes 10 to 15 minutes. And I remember in early 2011, <clears throat> instead of charging for this treatment for, for this injury, I just put it on YouTube. 
I filmed a very terrible video. <laughs> it was the first video that I ever filmed in my apartment way back in 2011. So over a decade ago, and we're talking zero editing whatsoever. I clicked record and then walked in front of the camera and there's parts of the video where only half my face is in it. And to this day, it is my most popular video ever. It has more than half a million views on YouTube. And I was essentially giving it away. Like here is how you get healthy from IT band syndrome. Right. And that video was hugely popular. I eventually, a couple of years later, created my injury prevention for runners program that includes a more formal treatment protocol for IT band syndrome. But the centerpiece of it is this routine. Yes, it includes more guidance and my treatment protocols include a lot. Myths about the injury. How do you adjust your training once you're healthy after you've gotten healthy so that you can hopefully prevent the injury from reoccurring. So there is more in it, but nobody has complained. And I've sold thousands of copies of this program that, hey, this ITBS treatment protocol includes your free ITB rehab routine. And yeah, there's a good example of how like that, putting that free routine up did not eat into my sales of this prevention program because the prevention program includes a lot more. It's more comprehensive. And in terms of the funnel, I created an article on strength running. I'm looking at it now. It was posted February 7th, 2011 about IT band syndrome and this routine. And I've since kind of updated the video, although you can still find the older video on YouTube and updated the article here to be a little bit more search engine uh, friendly, but this kind of formed a, a great introduction to strength running and a great top of the funnel piece of content. Because now from YouTube or from my site, and this article does well in search engines, I have people who, are, who have this injury or who might be very susceptible to this injury signing up to get a custom illustrated guide of this routine. And, and, and that is connected to an email sequence that, that talks more about injury prevention and how to stay healthy. And it ultimately goes on to sell my injury prevention program. So that, that's a great example of a one-two punch piece of content, the article and the video that leads into this email funnel that sells my prevention program. But it's also a great example of how I gave most of it away for free and, and, and nobody minds because ultimately the program includes a lot more. It's more comprehensive. And at the end of the day, it's effective. It actually helps people self-treat their IT band syndrome. At the end of the day, I'm helping people with what they actually care about. And I think that's much more important. So one thing I'm wondering about is you had mentioned the importance of building an email list early on and how it falls into this philosophy of like email is this owned audience where you're in full control of it throughout your journey in business. There are these rented audiences like social platforms like Twitter and Instagram where you can build something there, but it's very unstable because you fundamentally don't own it but like a Twitter does. And then obviously paid audiences where like you're buying keywords on Google and doing display advertising and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of building up this list and how when someone visits your site, for example, you don't actually need them to buy right away. In fact, collecting their email address for future communication and nurturing might be just as important in the long run. Yeah, you're definitely right that very few sales are going to come from people just discovering your website, 
checking it out, being like, oh, they have something to for sale and then buying it. Unless you're selling something that everyone needs and everyone understands like a toothbrush, yeah, they don't need to do a lot of research. They don't need to get to know you, the entrepreneur or you, the business before they make that purchase. If you're buying an Oral-B toothbrush, it doesn't matter what website you're on, you're getting an Oral-B toothbrush. And so when I was thinking about how to build strength running, I, I loved the idea of having an email list because it does lend itself better to selling. And I ultimately did want to make strength running into a business. So for the first six months or so, I don't think, I don't think I pitched anything. I don't, I didn't ha even have anything for sale on strength running, except a little tab up in the navigation menu that said, if you'd like to work with me for coaching, just send me an email. I rarely even sent people to that. And for me, it was something to build and nurture an audience. I could communicate directly with them. It wasn't like if you send out a tweet, a tweet's lifestyle, or I'm sorry, lifespan is only about 20 minutes. 20 minutes later, it's way down the feed. No one's going to see it anymore. And it's something that, you know, it just doesn't have any longevity to it. But if you send an email, most people are going to receive it. And then if you have a good open rate, a certain percentage of people are going to open that email. And at the beginning, smaller email lists typically have much higher open rates. And so it was a great way to, to nurture that audience, to get to know them a little bit more. I used to do much more, you know, kind of interesting things with my email list that I, I could do with a couple thousand person email list that might not work today with the size of mine. But I, I used to do fun, like name your own price promotions or for some of my programs or directly correspond with people via email. I would ask people to re respond to an email and then I would spend all day replying back. And so I can't really do that today, but at the time it was a really great way of building that community, nurturing that community, because if you never reply to people or you're just sending out these emails and if someone replies to one and then you never reply back, people just think that you're not there, you're not real. Or then all of a sudden you send them an email and you're like, hey, I actually have this helpful program. I think it will help you reach your running goals. They're like, I've already emailed you three times, Jason, you never responded. So they're just less likely to buy. So I really want to build a relationship with people. Number one, because I care. I, I love the sport. And I want to help runners improve. But then also from a business perspective, I think it is helpful at getting people closer to the yes of buying something. Awesome. To continue this thread, how has your thinking around online business strategy and, and tactics evolved over time? And I guess this is more philosophical, but like how important do you think it is to be aware of and invested in whatever the cutting edge of marketing is right now versus doubling and, and tripling down on what's historically worked? How do you balance getting excited about what's new and what people are utilizing with a lot of success versus this is my bread and butter and I'm going to double down on that? Yeah. So this is a great scenario where I think you have to do both. You can't just ignore the things that have worked and are working for you because that's what's making your business run. The things that are working for you right now. So I, I'm not going to ignore my blog. I'm not going to ignore my podcast or YouTube channel right now because those are working for me. And frankly, I'm enjoying them. So I'm going to keep doing them. Now there's also, there's anyone who's marketing a business or a product or service, you could go down a thousand and one rabbit holes, whether that's TikTok or really focusing on Instagram reels, or there's a million and one things that, that you could be thinking about. I think for me, one of the things that I'm really trying to 
focus on are, again, going back to those owned platforms. I have been going a little bit harder on YouTube, even though that's not really an owned platform, but I think YouTube is one of those just, it has much more potential than other platforms. And you always have to be putting your time, your energy, and your effort into what is working, uh, but also what you might think has more potential in the future. So it's really difficult for a blog post to go viral like it used to back in 2010, 2011, but videos can still go viral on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And YouTube is one of these few platforms that pay you to post content on it. It's pretty incredible. And then you get to drive people back to your website. You get to get sponsors for your videos. So there's a lot of interesting things about YouTube that I really like, but I, I think you have to really think about strategically about what's working, what has potential, what is working right now, but then also has more potential in the future. But then of course you have to give yourself some flexibility to experiment with some new things or to go take this social media platform and experiment with it for a little while. And yeah, I think 80% of your time has to be on what's working for you, the tried and true bread and butter of your business. But then 20%, you're experimenting, you're trying new things, you're seeing what works. A couple of things that, that I've tried recently, Strength Running has a TikTok account. I, I rarely post there because I, I find the platform very difficult for me to use consistently as a creator. And I'm trying to get a little bit more into YouTube shorts, which is this black box of no one knows how they work or why they work or whether you should have a new channel for it. So it's just one of these kind of new frontiers in, in digital marketing that is something that because I'm already producing video, I can get into in a very low risk way. So I think that's a good way to think about it. First, focus on platforms you control. Second, focus on things that, you know, you think have much more potential in the future. So in other words, try to ride the wave of popularity. So I rode the wave of blogging. I'm currently riding that wave of podcasting as this great growing medium right now that I think is fantastic. And so YouTube is another example of that too. I was listening to a marketing related podcast a couple of days ago, and I thought that they described the power of podcasts perfectly. They called it this sort of Trojan horse of content where you have the podcast, but then you can basically repurpose that podcast content into content for every other medium. So it can, you can transcribe it. It becomes an article. It can become YouTube clips. If you have a video associated with it, it can be social posts. You can just repurpose it in so many ways. I think in terms of the new podcast is really cool in that regard. I completely agree because this is actually a Gary Vaynerchuk strategy, I think, where the gold standard is have an in-person recorded podcast. And if you have that, you can then have a blog, you can do social media around that. You can have a YouTube channel. It's pretty incredible what you can do with just that. And you can see how Joe Rogan does this. You can see how Gary Vaynerchuk does this. You can see how many other big podcasters, Rich Roll is another one who's doing yep. very similar things. Yep. Yet the phrase just came to me. It's called the marginal cost of content creation. So podcasting reduces that marginal cost of having to go to create like a brand new blog post a brand new YouTube video. It's all there for you to use as raw material. That's so cool. Last little philosophical question here. It's a two-parter. Do you subscribe to the belief that when you're starting out building a business, it's important to invest in one or two scalable channels first? Or do you think that a new business owner should try to 
work on a bunch of different channels and, and, and be spread thin, but experimenting and testing a lot? Like at what point in the process do you start to diversify your reach and awareness? Yeah, that's a good question. I've settled on focusing on one or two at a time and then getting to a point where you've built systems around those platforms that make it easy to maintain them or to create content for them. And then you can go and build up other platforms. So a good example is at the very beginning, I really just focused on the strength running blog. So search engine optimization was my big uh, strategy for strength running at the very beginning. It still is. And then from there, I've diversified. I've, I've gone into podcasting and YouTubing as well as, as different strategies, but it's going to be really hard to get good at whatever you're trying to do, whether that's blogging and building a newsletter or becoming a YouTuber or building a big, bigger podcast. It's going to be really hard if you're spread thin with five or six or seven different platforms. If you're trying to be great on Instagram, I, I know people who spend most of the day on Instagram because if you're really focusing on it and it's a big part of your business and you're posting multiple times a day, it's a whole different ball game if you're an Instagram pro. I'm not an Instagram pro and, and I don't think it would dramatically change my business. And, and I think the time and effort that I would have to put into doing something like that just isn't worth it for at least my purposes. And so I think there are some things that are definitely higher leverage, like search engine optimization or building your newsletter, podcasting or YouTubing. Those are like my big four that I think are critically important. And I would always suggest for folks, focus on one or two at a time. And then once you've gotten to a point where you're comfortable where it is and you better understand it, of course, there's a learning curve. And if you're trying to learn 10 different things at once, it's going to take you a longer time to learn all those things. So I'd rather be less spread thin, worry about just a couple things at a time and then grow from there. I want to talk about role models for a second. And just for context, we've had this great conversation about business building in the running space. And a lot of listeners are, 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 I'm sure their brains are spinning right now, about what could be done in the space, who should they be studying right now, both in our sport and elsewhere when it comes to online business building. And then in addition to that, what should they be looking to reverse engineer and apply to their own situations? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think within the, the running and health and fitness space, there, there's a great group of business owners that I think are, are doing things the right way. I think Rich Roll is a great example. And if you're a business owner or you're an entrepreneur or you just want to be, you can look at these businesses and, and think to yourself, how is this structured? How is Rich making money with the Rich Roll podcast? He obviously has sponsors. Okay, that's that's one way to do it. And you can go to his website. Always go to the show's website and figure out there's probably something that they sell to the consumer from there because they're selling advertising to businesses. What are they selling to the listeners of the podcast? And, and the same thing with YouTuber. You can go and, and look at the run experience. I think it is probably one of the bigger run YouTube channels out there. They I think they have like more than half a million subscribers. They've just really cracked the YouTube code. A lot of respect to them. And so they have an app. They have a, a group coaching program. And you can start to see what certain businesses are doing to structure their business. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, there's only so many things that you can do. You can have a paid app. You can sell information products. You can sell coaching services. 
You can write a book, you can do speaking, you can have a podcast with sponsors on it. You can be an affiliate and refer customers to other people's products and you get a commission off that. There's a lot of different things that you could do to start monetizing whatever you're doing. And so I would almost encourage people to look at the content creators that that they respect, that they know are doing it as a business. So mm. there's a lot of content creators that do it just for, for a hobby. Nothing wrong with that. But if you want to support your family and do this sustainably for the long haul, you're going to have to support yourself. And so take a look at Rich Roll. Take a look at nerdfitness.com. Great uh, business run by my friend, Steve Cam. No Meat Athlete is another business run by my friend, Matt Frazier. He's doing some great things too. He's gotten into the consumer packaged goods space and is creating some great supplements for vegans. I think that's much more of an advanced business, probably not something you might need a partner for. But again, lots of opportunities for monetization. I think someone who does content really good, who understands funnels and is outside the running space is Ramit Sethi of I Will Teach You To Be Rich. And I read his personal finance book like way back before Strength Running. And so I was introduced to him as a, I, I need to, as a post-college student, I need to figure out money and how money works and what I do with my money and all that. But then I was like, oh, this guy has a website. And then I realized, oh, he's building a business from this. And that is a newsletter that I have gotten for 10 years or more. And I still read it to this day. And I think the way that he structures his business is really smart. So yeah, those are some people that I look up to and both in the running and outside of the space. And, and I would just encourage anyone to look at folks that they admire. How is their business structured? Maybe you sign up for their newsletter and you study what happens in the first week, what happens in the first month, and then what happens ongoing from there. So there's a lot of ways that you can study successful businesses and then try to emulate some of their strategies and tactics at a high level. There's a lot of really awesome examples there to go with. I think a lot of people in this audience would recognize Rich Roll. Are there any particular elements of the way Rich Roll approaches business that that you were particularly impressed by and inspired by, and maybe you've even started to incorporate some of those tactics into your own business? I think one of the things that I really respect about Rich is that he's a great storyteller and he is one of those people that takes a videotaped podcast and creates lots of content from it. Yes, it's a big podcast, but it's also in service of his growing Instagram page and his, his um, YouTube channel. Mm. And so he's really good with kind of creating content and then distributing it on multiple platforms. So as a great example of that, I really look up to him. And then he's someone who's, He's not just recording a podcast, he's writing books. And if you go to the Rich Roll site, there's tons of different apparel that you can buy. There's also, he has a meal planner, different program that, that you can get. Even different art, there's different prints that you can buy that I just think are, are, are fascinating. So he's been really good at creatively thinking about different products to create for his audience. And maybe that's another good lesson too, is, is don't just look at what else is out there, really listen to your audience. So if you have a blog or a YouTube channel or anything like that, ask your audience questions. And at the beginning for me, I did this constantly. And it was one of the reasons why the first program 
that I really ever created was an injury prevention program because it seemed like 60% of the questions I got were, were about injuries and how to stay healthy and how to run in, in a way that you would be prioritizing injury prevention. I, I took that as a cue as, wow, I need to create something that helps runners stay healthy. And so your audience can be another great example of, uh, or I'm sorry, a great opportunity for content ideas, for product ideas, and just ideas for your business. Awesome. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We're going to start to wind down. Final question, looking out a decade from now, what do you want to be doing in 10 years? What does the strength running brand look like at that point in time? Oh, that's such a great question. I would love to really build out all of the online channels that I want strength running to be present in and to be really good at, but then I'd love to do more in-person things, different running retreats, different meetups or workshops, maybe even putting on my own conference. I think those things where we can actually interact in real life is really attractive to me. And I think over the last year and a half or so with the pandemic, it's really brought to the forefront this idea that we thrive when we're with other humans. And I've been fortunate enough to attend two different running camps this year. So I was at a running camp in early August. And then again, last month in September, and they were just amazing experiences where you get to meet runners from all over the country, talk about their goals, what they're working on, and then deliver them a fun experience where they're running on amazing trails somewhere in Colorado. They're getting exposed to pro runners that come to the camp or do Q and A's or book talks or panels or something like that. So I, I would love to do more things like that. And, and I'm starting to explore the possibility of even doing a 2022 strength running retreat. And so I'm, I'm discussing that now, very excited about it, very excited about potentially writing a, a strength running book, been noodling on some ideas over the last couple of months. But what I love about my business is that there's flexibility. I can do a lot of different things and it never really gets old. So I'm always looking forward to, to going to work every day and figuring out new and different ways of helping runners achieve their goals. Very cool. I couldn't agree more about that, that pent up demand for in-person events and just hanging out with each other. And so I think that you're right on point with those running camps and those small group environment kind of projects. Uh, I know you mentioned this earlier in the episode, but before we sign off, where can people find you? What's the best way to get in touch with you? This is a good place to drop the social handles and the website and yeah, all that contact info. All right. Thanks, Finn. Yes. Yeah, strengthrunning.com is my home base. From there, you can check out the Strength Running Podcast. There are links, I believe, on almost every page to all of our different social handles. I'm at JasonFitz1 on both Twitter and Instagram. And then you can find strength running on YouTube and Facebook, but I, I would love any runners to check out the podcast in particular. We're bringing in a lot of great folks from you know, authors to high level coaches and other runners. And so if you, you're trying to think more strategically about your training, that's the whole goal of our podcast. And I think it could be really helpful. Awesome. Jason, thanks again. And until next time. Thank you, Finn. Appreciate it. Great chat. That is a wrap. A couple of my favorite takeaways from the episode. First, from the lightning round, 
I liked how Jason mentioned that for his own podcast, he looks to interview people that work around the elite athlete, enabling their performance. So people like strength coaches, physical therapists, dietitians, sports psychologists, that Rolodex of recovery people. Um, it'll be interesting to have a lot of those types of people on this podcast in upcoming episodes. So stay tuned. I liked the way he phrased that though. Similarly, his mention of training for the uphill athlete by house and Johnston. That's a great book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And he mentioned that philosophy of distinguishing between capacity training and utilization training. And I love that in terms of his business recommendations, here is what stuck with me that I think bears repeating. Number one, build your email list at all costs. In the long run, it is the most stable marketing channel because you fundamentally own the audience. You aren't beholden to any of these social media giants that could you know, change their algorithm. It's all about stability. Number two, start a podcast. You can repurpose that audio content into uh, written video and social forms. It makes content creation so much easier. And I think it's just the way that a lot of people want to consume content these days. Finally, number three, start putting yourself out there in ways that build trust and are designed for the long term. It's not self-promotion that is usually the answer. It's understanding the problems that your target audience has and working tirelessly to help solve them. Honestly, a lot of those uh, ways tend to be free. So that's all for now. Until next time, really appreciate you listening. 